Hi, I'm Bob Main, and welcome to another episode of today's Survival Show. This is episode 206, and it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. So I keep it practical. I don't go tinfoil hat. See, I believe that preparedness, self-reliance, survival, whatever name you want to give it, there's all kinds of semantics that people play with what we do, but it's common sense. It's just common sense. You know, it's something that a lot of people have gotten away from. And it's what our grandparents did. They they were prepared. They were prepared both naturally and they were prepared physically and they were prepared with supplies and knowledge and skills and everything that they needed in case the stink hits the fan. It was more of an inconvenience for them than it was an actual disaster. So that's what I like to talk about on this show. So I'll begin with a question for you. How much do you know about primitive living skills? As I cruise in my mobile studio here, I'm cruising down the freeway headed out to a business appointment, and I like to use some of my drive time while I'm in my car to talk about survival and things like that and do these podcasts. It's kind of a a way for me to be alone here and, and think. I started thinking about the same question. You know, how much primitive living skills do I know? And when I answered that question, I realized it was not enough. Now, you might be thinking, Bob, primitive living? Come on, this is the year 2013. Why do we need to know primitive living? Well, my guest coming up is going to talk about why everyday life needs to include some primitive living skills. And he's going to talk about how to take some primitive living skills and apply them to today, to modern day life, to the year 2013. Now, I want to set this up by saying a few things here about what what I think is coming. Again, this is just my personal opinion. This is just Bob Main talking. And I, I try to be as, as observant as I possibly can. I'm not an ostrich. I don't have my head stuck in the sand. I'm not using the power of denial to, you know, convince myself that nothing's going to happen. Never underestimate the power of denial. How many of you listening to this know somebody in total denial? Right? They don't even want to think about the what if. Now, I'm not saying what if yourself to death. I'm not saying, you know, just worry incessantly every day. That's not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, you know what you'll find? When you prepare, your worry tends to go away. It's, it's not a worry for you because you know that if something happens, it's just going to be an inconvenience for a while. But what I think is coming is if you pay attention to the news right now, You're hearing some people talk about a recovery. You're hearing politicians talk about it. You're hearing pundits talk about it. You're even hearing ordinary citizens talking about it. This morning, I live in the San Antonio area. This morning, I was listening to radio, and they were talking about the housing market on a strong rebound. Recently, we've seen the news of the U.S. stock market with major gains in the U.S. stock market. What I think is going on right now is I think this is the beginning of a false recovery. A false recovery. You see, I don't think this is a real recovery because we have not done anything in this country to promote long-term financial stability. Nothing. And it's a false recovery. There's been so many hundreds of millions and billions and even trillions of dollars pumped into the system. Monopoly money. Money printed and pumped into the system that really has little to no value. But it is dollars floating out there. And I think that when you feed a beast enough, that beast is going to grow. But the problem is, is what's going to happen when the food supply for that beast is gone. And I think that's what's happening right now. I think the United States government is printing money and they're borrowing and spending like crazy, feeding this massive beast. But at some point, that food supply has to end. And you know what? Our government does not prep. I'm talking about the U.S. government. Now, I know I have people who listen 
internationally. I don't know too much about you know the other governments. I, maybe I need to pay more attention to what other governments are doing overseas. But right now, I'm just paying attention to ours. And this is not meant to be a political show. I'm just trying to tell it like it is. I, I try to keep politics out of this show. There's other, sh- other podcasts you can listen to for that. That's not really the, the focus of this show. But I, I'm just paying attention. And I've realized that the United States government does not prep. They don't prepare. They don't set themselves up for long-term sustainability. They're all short-term thinkers. So there will be a collapse of some kind. On the other end of this bubble, and this is a bubble. This is a bubble similar to what we saw seven years ago, you know, uh, seven or eight years ago. It's a bubble like, like we saw earlier. It's going to burst. You know, it's amazing. I heard on the news last night, they said that uh, uh, the stock market has not seen gains like this since shortly before the Great Depression. And I thought, wow, did they just say that? Did they just say the stock market has not seen gains like this since shortly before the Great Depression? I don't know if that news anchor really understood what she was saying. I mean, think about that. It came before the Great Depression. That's not good news, folks. That's not good news. But yet this news anchor, this news anchor lady was trying to make it sound like, oh, this is good news. Look at how good the stock market's doing. The last time what followed was the Great Depression. How is that good news? You see where people's thinking lies? It, it's people's thinking, it's twisted. I don't understand. I don't recognize my country and my fellow Americans anymore. You know, it's kind of like Glenn Tate, the, the author of the book series 299 Days. When he interviewed with me a couple months ago, you know, he, he said he felt like America it has cheated on him. It's kind of like a marriage, you know, where your spouse cheats on you. He feels like his country's cheating on him. And I thought, what a great analogy. And, and that's what we've got going on. So don't be fooled. I'm trying to say, please, don't be fooled. And by the way, speaking of Glenn Tate's book, book number five is coming out. If you haven't completed the first four, I am telling you what, folks, you will thoroughly enjoy the common sense message that Glenn Tate writes in his book series, 299 Days. Uh, the story is about him. Now, I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you'd like to support my show, please go over to www.todayssurvival.com and click my recommended books page. My recommended books page at todayssurvival.com. You'll see a link to buy Glenn's books through Amazon. You will help my show if you buy his books. I will earn a small fee from my Amazon associates. And feel free to do whatever shopping you want on Amazon after you go and click through Amazon. Click to Amazon through my link. Click through my link even if you don't want to buy the book. Even if you just want to buy something on Amazon, click through my link, please. And then when you do your shopping, you'll get great Amazon pricing, you'll get great Amazon availability, and you'll help today's survival show at the same time. I appreciate it if you would do that. But his book five is coming out soon, so check that out. So anyway, I think we have this false recovery, and I think it's starting. I think it's, it's in swing right now. Who knows how long it's going to last. I don't like to give time predictions or anything. But on the other side of this recovery is going to be some really bad stuff. And if you're not ready for it, well, I hope you start to get ready for it. And I hope that you wake up. And if you've got somebody that doesn't want to admit the what if, doesn't want to think about that, oh, that horrible stuff. What if this happens? What if that happens? You know, There are people like that. Here's what I would urge you to do. Just prep. You just prep. Okay, you just do what you can with what you have, wherever you are, you just prep. Let let the friends and loved ones who don't believe, just let them continue with their thinking. I would say at this point, don't try to change them. 
If they come around on their own, wow, that's great. Welcome them with open arms. But if they don't, you just keep preparing. And when the stink hits the fan, even if it's a small disaster, the nature of your preparedness will probably speak to them. And then all of a sudden, they're going to thank you. Then all of a sudden, you're going to be a hero. Oh, wow, boy, Bob, you were right. Man, all that prepping that you did that I made fun of, boy, we, that's really paying off now. And you can just sit back and smile. I would say that's probably what you ought to be doing, what the best thing is that you can do. Okay, so that's enough of my introduction. Let's get into the interview. There's a gentleman named White Bear. His Lakota name is White Bear. He's a primitive living wilderness survival instructor, a pretty good one. And he's got a couple of good YouTube channels out there. He teaches all over the country in the wilderness. That's his classroom. And he's a primitive living expert, primitive living skills expert. What I like is he's well-spoken. And he speaks to us in terms of how we can apply some primitive living principles to today's life in 2013. How cool is that? So here we go, my interview with uh, White Bear. That's his Lakota name in western Montana. All right, my guest for this episode is back for a second time, Mr. White Bear in Montana. How you doing? Good. How you doing, Bob? Good. Thanks for coming back on the show. You are a primitive living skills teacher, are you not? Yes, yes. Primitive Living Skills and Wilderness Self-Reliance, yes. Yeah, thanks. And it was about six months ago or so when you and I did the last interview, and I'm, I'm glad you're back because I've got a lot of new listeners lately, and I think they're really going to enjoy this topic. Well, I think it's something that's, that's prudent for people to understand. Uh, you know, everybody is so bent on using technology and electronics and whatnot that they don't realize if, in fact, the grid goes down or, you know, if we lose a lot of uh, the utilities that we have, and if you're not set up to be off the grid, that basically you're screwed. And, uh, you know, people just don't understand that. And there are some very simple things that, even if people are not completely into primitive living, there are some very simple things that they can do, isn't there? Oh, ex- yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I- um, You know, prepping is such a big thing that people are doing nowadays and with the advent of uh, reality TV and the influx of, you know, the survival and preparedness shows, uh, you know, there's been a, a recent boom in people getting prepared, so to speak, and stockpiling, you know, food and water, guns, ammunition, you know, fuel, et cetera. And, and you know, it's just, it's, it's th- there's a lot of things that people watch in these shows and they think, oh, it's so easy. But, you know, if you're not prepared and you don't know what you're doing, you could be left uh, holding the bag, so to speak. Yeah, and I want listeners to understand, White Bear lives this stuff. And by the way, White Bear is your real name, isn't it? Yes, that is my Lakota name, yes. And you live this stuff. You're out in, if I remember right, you're out in western Montana. Yes, I, uh, I, I live what I teach, and I teach what I live, yes. Yeah, and that's why I like it so much, because, you know, you're not just somebody with some ideas. You're somebody with life experience at this. Yeah, I, you know, I've been doing this my whole adult life and even when i was a child i did it as much as i could i, I grew up in the city uh because i, I have I, my mother was is very much a city girl but uh, i was always in the woods and i was always exploring and always uh you, you know working with primitive things birch bark making containers and building little forts and and you know survival shelters when i was a kid not even realizing you know where it was leading me uh you know to where i am today Talk a little bit about your YouTube channel and your website and what you teach, and then we'll get right into the subject matter. Well, I, and I cover everything from uh, primitive living skills and uh, wilderness self-reliance, and I call it self-reliance instead of survival because uh, a lot of people, when you, when you te- try, to, try to teach them survival, they, it puts them in the wrong frame of mind where self-reliance, um, you're more relaxed at what you do. It's not, you're not thinking, oh, I have to survive. You're thinking, I just have to sustain um, and I do have two YouTube. I have two YouTube channels. I have my Primitive Living YouTube channel, and I have my Barefoot Bush Rat uh, because I also go be- full time barefoot. Uh, have been. This is now my 13th year of doing it, and uh, it it's uh, you know a great way of life, and, and one that people really don't understand. The people that live where I live now, they they understand it more, but uh, a lot of people don't really understand it. But it's uh, a very self satisfying, natural way to live. It's your 13th year of doing it. Yes. 
Nice. I remember in our yeah. last podcast, I remember our last show, you talked about doing uh, what a lot of primitive living instructors do. You also go barefoot all the time, don't you? Yes. Yeah, this, that's, this is my 13th year of the barefoot. Uh, actually, this is my 30th year, uh, thirty going into my 31st year of teaching, of actually teaching full-time. Um, my schools, I've had my school since 1982. Since 1982, um, This wow. is my 13th year, yeah. yeah. So I, I am actually the oldest um, wilderness uh, self-reliance and primitive living skills school uh, out there. Congratulations. Well, do me a favor, White Bear, before we get into this subject matter, tell people like me and the thousands who listen that might be suburban dwellers, tell us how we can incorporate some primitive living skills into our daily lives. Well, uh, let me preface it by saying this. Um, you know, one of the things that people say is, what is so important about primitive technology? And uh, there's a lot of practical value in knowing the history of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Uh, primitive skills are the baseline for all human technolo- technological development and advancement. And people don't realize that. And keeping up the old ways of doing things is very pertinent, uh, not just because we're nostalgic, which you know a lot of us are, but because we've learned as a society a lot of variables that are present in just about everything that is developed for human use in the 21st century. Um, and some of the benefits of studying basic primitive technologies are uh, like an increased awareness of where our modern tools and products came from and where they're taking us. Um, an increased appreciation for, as well as a mistrust of, modern technology. Uh, and, and one example of that is uh, plastics. Uh, you know, while they've made it possible for, to mass-produce products for consumer use, they're also detrimental to human health and, envi- and the environment, as plastics are made from petrochemically-based compounds. And regardless of what we're told, plastics do leach cancer-causing gases, which we ingest through the plastic bottles and cups and plates that we eat, drink and eat from. And the petrochemically made plastics also take hundreds to thousands of years to decompose and are filling landfills to the max capacity and even to overflowing. Um, so, you know, there's an, in, aware, an increased awareness of how technology has shaped our evolution and still shapes our lives, you know, like from the cradle to the grave. You know, example like diapers and pacifiers when you're a baby to diapers and oxygen cannulas and even caskets, you know, when you're going to the grave, which are all made of plastics anymore. That's interesting. You know, these are things we don't think about. And, you know, one of my old mentors taught me an old saying that I, I carry with me still. He said, the old is forever new. Right, exactly. Exactly. And so your, your, your points about primitive living still having a, an impact on us. Give us an example of an old way of doing things that's still pertinent today. Well, um, you know, there's, there's uh, practical applications for primitive living. Um, one is like food preparation. Um, and those are, you know, there's two basics that we can discuss today. And the first is the skill of food preparation. And it's a skill that everyone should know to the most basic level yeah. just to be able to self-sustain if need be. You know, uh, uh, food preparation and storage, uh, you know, how and why you should make your own and why making your own is better versus buying packaged, you know, is, is a big point. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people uh, out there today that are buying from these companies that sell this the freeze-dried and prepackaged dried foods and whatnot, and that's great, but that gets really expensive. And if you have a family, you know, say of three or four, with the, today's economy, that can add up really quick. And if you, if you don't have the money, you're not going to be able to prepare as well, where you could, you could make your own for a third or maybe even a quarter of what it costs to buy the stuff. See, that's a you great know? that's a great point. Expand on that because that's the first one on your list, and I think it's probably the most important one that you've sent me. Making your own. What do you suggest that people do? Well, you know, people don't realize that they can grow, prepare, dry, and seal their own ingredients to make meals that are just as tasty, if not tastier, healthier, and less expensive than the freeze-dried. And one way is... You know, a lot of people talk about drying food, and they think they have to go out and buy one of those commercially made food dehydrators, which are not inexpensive. You can find them, like, at secondhand stores because a lot of people get them and don't know how to use them, and they, you know, they just get rid of them or a garage sale or Craigslist or places like that. But you can even use your own oven at home. You just set it to between 150 and 200 degrees, depending on how new or how old your oven is. You can use the 
the, the uh, racks in there, and you can set cookie sheets or drying racks that you use. Like if you're if you bake or if your wife's bake or whatever, you can use those racks and count. You know, turn them uh, ninety degrees. Racks are in there, so you get like a, a crosshatch effect, and you could actually cut potatoes and carrots and uh, meats and whatnot. You can dry it in your oven. You don't need to buy a, a commercial food dehydrator or dryer. You can make you just use your oven. You already have it. You know, yeah. it's very simple. Um, you can dry, like I said, veggies and, and meats. Uh, you know, you can make stews and soups. You can take uh, like rice and beans. You can soak the, the beans so that they soften up, then dry them thoroughly before adding them. And you can take your vegetables, your meat, your rice, your beans. You can put them in a pouch. Now you could buy, you know, like a one, uh, the commercial name or generic name is Sealer Meal. You can buy a food sealer. You can buy the roll of plastic, and you can sit there and, and make your own proportions, the size that you want. Bigger for maybe mom and dad, smaller for the kids, whatever. And then you can store those away, and they'll last just as long as what you're buying off the Internet or at the market. Interesting. That's good. You know, and it's going to take a little bit of work. It's going to take a little bit of know-how and perseverance. Perseverance. Do you put something out? Do you put any kind of instructions out to people that want to make their own um, food that they can store? Well, actually, I am doing a video series that I'm filming right now that I'm going to be putting out shortly on uh, doing that very thing, um, as well as like drying herbs and, and fungi, you know, like mushrooms, say, rosemary, parsley, example, um, you know, seasonings, uh, you know, to, that you can grow or buy. You can buy seasonings cheap, uh, the drying herbs and plants, you know, uh, the growing techniques as far as traditional gardening, container gardening, or hydroponic gardening. Uh, um, you know, if you're going to buy stuff that you should organic and, and buy from like local farmers markets, um, natural and organic markets, or grocery stores that carry natural or organic. Yeah, I've been a big believer in organic foods. When I grow up, uh, grew up, you know, my mother raised us uh, organically for basically most of my younger life, and we had our own organic garden. We raised all of our animals organically. I hate to say it, but I've kind of gotten away from that for the most part, but I need to get more into it. I, I do eat some organic, and I, I, I can definitely tell the difference, especially in the taste. I mean, organic chicken, wow, it, it tastes so much better than regular store-bought stuff. Oh, any well, especially like dairy products. I mean, if you, if you put the side-by-side um, organic, Organic milk versus regular milk, you can definitely taste the difference. Milk that you get that's non-organic um, tastes like uh, it has metal in it when you're used to drinking organic. And there's a big difference, and that's from the, the antibiotics and the hormones that they put in that actually absorbs the flavors from the metal. Even though they're stainless steel, it absorbs a metal taste from the, the um, containers that they're, they're held in before they're packaged in the plastic cartons. And uh, it makes a big difference. And one prime example is, <clears throat> excuse me, my aunt uh, who passed away in 2009, she had diabetes for 20 years. And she, the last few years of her life, uh, the doctor restricted her from dairy because they said it was causing a problem. And she loved milk. And I told her, I said, if you drink organic, you won't have a problem. And she was real hesitant. And I, so I, I gave her a little bit of organic milk. And she did not have any problem when she drank it and she was so glad that she was able to drink milk again so for the last roughly uh 12 to 14 months of her life she was able to go back on drinking milk and not have any problem and even the doctors were astounded at the fact that she was able to drink organic and not have a problem that's cool that's that's excellent where do you get your organic milk well you a lot of the grocery stores are carrying it now um you know i i prefer to go to like the small markets or even uh the co-ops i like to support co-ops uh, um and you know that that really they once they get to know you then and you get to know them you can get a lot of great deals and they usually have uh, some pretty good uh products there and and even if <clears throat> excuse me even if you don't want to go full organic there are products that are called all natural and what people don't realize about that is the only difference between all natural and organic is that the farm has to be certified by the government to be organic. But all natural is basically the same thing. They don't use any hormones, antibiotics, or anything like that. So even even the all natural can be a little cheaper than organic, and you're still going to get the same results as the organic. And you also have to be careful with organic because there are some people out there, which I know it's hard to believe, but there are some people out there that will market organic products, but they're not actually organic. 
Wow, they really? By, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, they figure by slapping the organic label on that people are going to say, oh, wow. But you definitely know the difference. Uh, I was traveling, uh, and I stopped at a store, and they had organic milk. I bought. They had little quarts of it. I bought a little quart part of it, and I drank it. I mean, if I drink regular milk, it gives me uh, stomach problems, I can tell. And I dr- drank this milk, and within about 30 minutes, I was having problems. And I was wondering, so I looked at the label, and the way they got around it was they had um, they had reduced the amount of some of the hormones and antibiotics to a level that supposedly the FDA would approve them as organic, which is really a lie because uh, according to what I understand, the FDA is very stringent on their F- on their organic regulations of what you have to be as a farm to be certified organic, and it's a very it's a very tumultuous process to go through to become certified organic. And so I don't know how they got away with it, but they did, and I knew instantly after drinking it that there, it was not completely organic. So there is some some. Uh, companies out there that will mislead you into thinking so you really have to be aware of what you're buying and, and when you buy an organic product stick with that product every time you buy it yeah you're right i was being kind of sarcastic a few <laughs> minutes ago when i when i made the comment oh really there's people that'll try to fool you on that because <laughs> you know it's it's buyer beware you know no kidding i mean there's you, you really got to be doing your homework but when you do find a good or good or, organic product remember which one it is keep buying that stick with it um I think I've told this story before on my podcast, but if not, you know, I grew up on organic dairy products, and and like I mentioned, a lot of organic stuff. We milked goats. We had two milking goats when I was a kid, and so I, I, I grew up mainly on organic goat's milk, and then... Both of our goats died after, I think it was seven or eight years of of giving milk. We then actually bartered with a local farmer, a local dairy farmer in Wisconsin. We bartered with him for fresh, organic cow's milk. Right, right. Yeah, I I had a cousin that had a dairy farm when I was a child. I would go for a couple weeks in the summertime or a couple months even in the summertime, and I would work on his dairy farm i love doing it and we drank the raw milk and it was organic because they didn't have all the chemical pesticides and all that crap back when i was a kid and and we drank the raw organic milk right from the cow you know it was not pasteurized and homogenized and all this other stuff it was the raw milk and you know it, it never did hurt us and now you know today people are trying to get back to raw milk and you're you know the gut is trying to stop it because of this, that, and the other, and it's it's the it's the the dairy industry that doesn't want people to realize that organic is better and the raw milk is better. They don't want people to know it because then that would really hurt sales, and they don't want that. It would cut into their profits. Oh, um, sure, big time. Yeah, I mean, I drank raw goat's milk and raw cow cow's milk growing up. When we yeah. when we milked our goats, all we did was filter it, and then of course my mother would take some of the cream off the top, and she'd make homemade ice cream and stuff like that with the cream. But we sure. drank the raw milk. We never had a single health problem from drinking the raw milk. When we bartered with the local dairy farmer, he gave us raw cow's milk. And by the way, I want people listening to this to know if you got some dairy farmers around your area, you can barter with them. They will sell you raw milk. Don't think that they won't. Not everyone, but you'll find one that will be happy, especially if you offer him to pay him a premium for what he typically gets. Well, I, I, bartering is a big thing nowadays, and it's, it's something that is kind of a uh, you know, bygone trade is uh, being able to barter, and people have gotten away from that. But I do a lot of bartering uh, through my travels and whatnot. I've actually bartered, because I, I do carpentry as well, and I actually have bartered some of my carpentry skills, fixing up uh, farmers' barns and whatnot in, in exchange for maybe a chicken or some eggs or some milk or you know even some beef or whatever. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've done it all, and it's, it's a really good way is, is to barter. You might have a trade or skill that you can use and barter with a, with a you know a farmer or even at a local farmers market, I've had people that I've bartered things with to get some of their produce and whatnot, and uh, that's a big thing. Is I'm I'm really big into supporting farmers at farmers markets or farm you know the, the small markets. Like I said, those are really the best way, and that that kind of leads into maybe a building like a prepping community, which has become real big. People talking about you know building their prepping teams and prepping communities, and that's one way to add. Uh, some really reliable people to your prepping community or prepping team. Absolutely. A white bear next on your list, you want to talk about sundries and different types of sundries that are necessary to have, right? 
Yeah, you know, sundries are a, a real big importance. And for people that may not understand what sundries are, those are your basic household items that you use on a daily basis, you know, like toilet paper, um, you know, some of your cleaning uh uh, like bleach and things like that and and it's really really important to have those kind of things and one very common thing to have is uh, like household bleach and i know other people have talked about it but people don't understand how important having bleach around um is and the, the many uses of it you know uh for, the biggest thing is for if you need to um uh treat water and hyposodium chloride solution in three three to six percent the non-scented and non-phosphate bleach, just the regular household bleach is what you want to use. Um, tincture of iodine, that can be used for treating water, can also be used for treating injuries. Uh, providone iodine is another one. And these things can all be multi-used. And there, there's, those are three things, either the tincture of iodine, which comes using a 2% to 4% solution, or the providone iodine, which comes in a 9% to 12% solution. Um, and the bleach are the things that you should really have as mainstays in your house. Bleach is good for purifying water. It's also a terrific um, sanitizer. I think that everybody should have bleach for sanitary purposes, especially if the stink hits the fan. You never know when that's going to come in handy. Exactly. I mean, Katrina is a good example of that. You know, that, that was something that people really could have used down there. A lot of people didn't have. Absolutely. Um, okay. Also, you've got on your list water storage, purification, and repurposing water. Talk about that. Well, you know, water storage is is a big thing. Um, being able to catch water and have containers, uh, preferably the fifty five gallon drums. And there's a lot of places now. Even even Walmart is actually selling uh, the fifty five gallon blue drums that are food grade barrels that you can store water in. And they also have fifteen gallon barrels that you can do it in. But the fifty five gallons are nice because you can set up a uh, like a rain gutter attached to your house or your garage or carport or shed, put a barrel under it with a downspout and catch water and that's a great way. Rainwater is a great way to do it. And one of the things that people don't know that I've really been talking to people about because I've been doing a lot of consultation the last couple of years with people on getting their houses ready in case uh, the stink hits the fan is to use copper as your rain gutter to catch your water and the reason copper is so important is because it initially kills bacteria and uh, there's been laboratory tests that show that you know when cleaned regularly the, the uh, copper is antimicrobial it kills mm-hmm. greater than 99.9% of, of most bacteria, like MRSA, the VRE, uh, Staphylococcus, uh, you know, E. coli, and a lot of others. So copper is a very good way to initially purify the rainwater because if there is any bacteria in that water, you want to get rid of it before it gets into the barrel. Um, and when you get the barrels, the first thing to do is you should uh, rinse them out with hot water and some bleach, let them dry, then what I've been doing in my rain barrels is I've been adding about 12 to 18 pre-1982 pennies into the bottom of the barrel. Interesting. Okay. How many of them do you put in the bottom of the barrel? 12 to 18 of them. And the pre-1982 pennies have a lot more copper. They're, they're, the, they're the, the solid copper, yes. 12 to 18 of them. Okay. Yeah. And that, that will help kill any of the bacteria um, if you don't have the pennies, then you can add one tablespoon of bleach per gallon of water. Right. Uh, That's what I do. Cap, yeah, you should cap it and store it in a dark, cool place until needed. Yeah. And your water will stay good. Now, for people who don't have basements in their homes, like those of us here in Texas, where would you suggest storing water? Uh, a sh- like a, a, a shed in the backyard would be a good place. It's not very cool in those sheds, though. Sometimes it gets awful well, hot. Yeah, it's not cool. I mean, if you if you can insulate the walls and the ceiling, so it'll keep keep cooler. If it's on a cement slab, the cement is going to draw coolness from the ground, so it will re- retain more coolness in there. Uh, cover windows to keep it dark in there, and it it works pretty well. How about just a dark closet inside the house at at normal room temperature? Yeah, you could do it in there. You know, if you if you have the room, a lot of people have their closets pretty well crammed with stuff. So yeah, but yeah, you could if you if you specified. Uh, uh, you know, one closet for that. Yeah, you could do that. Well, I have a separate room, actually, in my house that is not very full. I like to store water in there, keep it dark. It's room temperature. I like to throw a tablespoon, excuse me, a teaspoon of bleach in there for every gallon. 
Yeah, it's it's a good you know if you don't have the pennies if you know if you can't find the pennies throw those in there and you're pretty good. If if it's rainwater, it's usually pretty pretty well uh, ready to go as far as drinking. You don't really have to sanitize it, but uh, bacteria can grow in it as time goes on. So yeah, you can either use the bleach or you could use the pennies um, in there to help keep the uh, bacteria at bay. Did you say a tablespoon or a teaspoon of bleach? Tablespoon of bleach per gallon. Okay, tablespoon. I've been using too little. I need to add add some in there then. Um, yeah, it's it uh, when you when you're putting it into 55 gallons, uh, it's it you know it, it you need a little more than a little less. Well, I'm not storing it in 55 gallons. Um, I'm storing it in, in uh, the largest glass containers I can find. Okay, so like the mason jar type. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you could do a teaspoon in one of those, and that you'd be fine with that. And I could put pennies in those in the bottom of those too, couldn't I? Sure. You, yeah, I would throw three to four pennies in the bottom of one of those jars of some pre nineteen eighty two pennies. Right. Um, I'm also using on a limited basis just some plastic bottles. I rotate my water a lot. I rotate it about every forty five days or so. Uh huh. Yeah, plastic. I mean, if, if plastic's all you have, that, that's great. I, I don't, uh, you know, as I said before, I'm not a big fan of plastic. I, you know, the plastic. Uh, uh, not for long term. I don't use plastic yeah. for long term. I use glass for long term, but but plastic is good for short term water storage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. It's fine. And you know, you, you see a, a one point about plastic is you see on a lot of the survival shows where they'll take a plastic bottle and they'll put it over a fire to. Uh, boil their water and, and you know i guess if you're in a real dire situation i would never do it on one of my trips that i take people out i would never have them boil in a plastic bottle because it it just le- you know leaches too many gases that are not good for the body um, but i guess if you're in a real pinch and you really have to do it you could do it that way yeah and, uh, i don't work, but... i don't advocate i don't advocate boiling in a plastic bottle either the only thing i use my water in plastic bottles for is like i said short term water storage i have both short term and long term and the long term you got to store differently but the short term for example if people are are probably going to bug in or if they're not going out in the wilderness or something like that you know and they're going to be rotating their water stores i i date every bottle as to you know when i stored it so i can rotate it about every 45 days right right that's that's a good practice that's a very good practice yeah but i like i like your idea of the pennies for the long-term water storage especially if you're using a 55 gallon barrel those 18 to 20 pennies in the bottom of that that's good yeah well you know people people talk about silver all the time silver is another good uh bacteria side basically but you know people don't realize the the benefits of uh copper and it you know what it does for you so and and the copper the minerals in copper are very good for the body as well, so it, it's a it's you know you get a double benefit out of it. Yeah, um, excellent. Now another topic on your list here is modern gear and its primitive uses. I, I'm really interested in this one. Well, there's there's both there's there's primitive gear and its modern uses, and modern gear and its primitive uses. And uh, one of the things that uh, I teach people with the primitive gear is like for instance growing gourds and squashes. And there's a real benefit to that, and you can you can pretty much grow them just about anywhere you are. And obviously, if you're in a really cold climate, you can't really grow them, or if you're in a really arid climate. But you know, if you had like a greenhouse where you could regulate the temperature and the humidity, you could pretty much uh, grow gourds and squashes, and, and they're great to use. Uh, you can use the gourd itself. Um, you can dry and clean them, and use them to, to store dry goods or foods. Uh, you can even use them as water containers. You could use them as a bartering item or selling for cash profit, which will help to supplement your prep supply. Um, you can dry the seeds from gourds and uh, for supplemental nutritional snacks or as a barter item. They taste so, they taste great. When I was a kid, oh yeah, you know that. As a matter of fact, uh, unfortunately, I don't have the ideal setup for a garden like I used to have. But yeah, those seeds are good. I used to eat those a lot. Right. Even even if you. Uh, you know, go to the like in the fall. If you go to a place, uh, an apple orchard or a pumpkin patch, and you pick up a couple, you know, you can take that that inside. You can cook it. You can can it. You can make uh, pumpkin butter. You can make you know pumpkin puree for different things. You can you know you can take your squashes and you can can those as well. And you know, so those those are great ways to store food. And then you could use the the outer shell of the gourd again, and you know, use it for storing other things, water containers. And a lot of you know, there's a lot of women out there that will. Uh, bedazzle them, uh, for lack of a better term, and then sell them at craft fairs and, and make uh, make money on them. So, 
you know, there's there's a lot of things you can do with, with something like that. So a lot of reason to grow the gourds and squash. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, with, with, mod, with some modern gear, like, for instance, uh, you know, the water purifiers, you could, you could use those and you could fill the gourds with, with clean water. If you go to the stream and you don't have a way to make a fire, don't wait to have any other way to purify it, and you need a, a short-term water, you could go to a stream and fill it up. Or, uh, you know, even I would suggest if you're using tap water from the city, I would even filter tap water from the city because you want to get rid of, of as much of the chemicals and contaminants that are in that water. Um, and those those new, uh, you know, backpacking filters that you can get. I, I was given one by a guy that I gave a ride to, and he gave me one. And I'm not a big fan of them, but I, I tried them out, and they seem to work okay. Uh, I wouldn't use them for a long term, but for a short term, they're a good thing to have. And you know, it's a, it's a it works in a primitive application because if you don't have a water source uh, that's like running water from the city or whatever, and you need to get water, you could use it. So it kind of becomes a primitive tool. Yeah, yeah, that's you know that's interesting. You know, I wanted to ask you, Bear, give us give us an example or two of primitive gear and its modern uses. Well, the gourd I was just telling you about. Right. Uh, there's yeah. Also, uh, you know, there's a lot of hunters out there or roadkill animals, and you can use the hides for clothing, shelter. I was wondering cultures. about that. I was. It's funny you mentioned that. I didn't know you were going to bring up the roadkill hides, but I I was actually wondering about that before we started our call here. Uh, go on. This is good. Yeah, I I usually pick up anywhere between six and twelve roadkill animals a year. And I process them out. I use the hides, and uh, I, I tan the hides, and I either sell them or I use them to make uh, like leather pouches or bags. Um, I've I've used them and stitched them together to make shelters. I've stitched them together to make clothing, and I've sold it. I used to make moccasins uh, that I would sell. Um, I use the sinew for like lacing and glue and things like that. At the meat, obviously, to be dried for food or as a barter item. Um, you can take the hooves and render them down for glue. You can take the fat for tallow, which can be used for lighting and waterproofing and, you know, a lot of other things. That's that's amazing. I mean, that's just amazing what, what you just said there. Uh, you know, I mean, roadkill. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, they'll see roadkill and go, ugh, stay away from that. You just kind of blew that up, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously if, if the, the animal's been laying there for more than 24 hours, especially if it's a 90-degree day, you know, in, in southern Texas, you're not going to want, want to pick it up because it's going to be bloated. But if, it, if you're in, a, in like, a, up here in the north where it's really cold and the animal dies and freezes, you, it's just like putting it in the freezer. So you could, you know, still use a lot of the meat and you still could use the other parts of the animal. Um, you know, you could use the bones for tools. You could use the teeth to make jewelry. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with it. So, you know, you may not be able to use all the meat, but you could maybe still use some of the meat. And um, the rest of the animal will still be good to be processed out for the other things that I talked about. <laughs> I can just, I can imagine what people, what folks are thinking right now. But uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that. It's amazing. Great minds think alike. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, people don't realize that um, a, a lot of what we do today all stems, like I said earlier, from our, our primal hunter-gatherer roots from our ancestors from as far back as 20,000 years ago. I mean, everything that we do, the fire that we use, I mean, it, it was it was primitive. They learned by, by seeing a lightning strike that, you know, this is fire. They found out this is fire. And then they found out how that wood burns. So they found out how to rub two, two sticks together to make fire. And it's just, you know, it's grown from there. And, you know, there's a lot of those things that we've lost. But let me tell you, the people that aren't prepared, they're not going to make it. The ones that are prepared know these skills are going to have a greater advantage. Yeah, and you're talking about stuff that people can actually do today, even before the stink hits the fan. You know, there's some things that you can do today based on the just, you know, the last 32 minutes of conversation that you and I have had that people can apply to their everyday lives right now. Exactly. And that's, I hear that a lot. I hear people say, well, you know, I have a plan next year, I'm going to do this. And then next year, I'm going to do that. Or, you know, when I get my bonus check at Christmas time, I'm going to do this. Well, okay, what if we have a situation that happens? I mean, realistically, we're already in the stink, it's the fan mode. Yes, we are. I've said that many times. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's people really uh, kind of amaze me how they can be so blinded by the fact of what's right in front of their eyes. You know, I mean, it's, it's saying they can't see the forest for the trees. And, you know, 
there's a lot of people that think, oh, well, just, just a few more months, it's going to turn around. Just a few more months, it's going to – and then when those few months go by, they go, oh, just a few more months, it's going to turn around. I don't think it's going to turn around. I think it's just going to get worse. You know, I, I mean, I think we are literally on the proverbial edge of someone re- reaching up and hitting the handle and the toilet flushing and swoosh down the toilet we go. Well, you know, there was a guy that emailed me last week. And I read the email on last week's podcast, and basically, his his spouse is reluctant to get into prepping because she doesn't want to think about the what if. And I think what you just described is an example of people that don't want to face reality. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They don't want to face their own reality, and a lot of people don't want to face the responsibility of being responsible for themselves they want someone else to be responsible for them you know people that i I have friends that bought houses and they bought into these mortgage only uh or interest only mortgages and i told them at the time i said you're making a bad deal oh no no this is great this is great and they all thought you know oh in five years a no problem i'm going to be able to pay it off and i'm going to be good to go and they didn't make it and i know a lot of them that were Look, saying, well, you know, the government talked me into this, so why isn't the government bailing me out? Well, because the government had this ulterior motive that worked very well for them and, you know, left you holding the bag. So, you know, they kind of woke up and, and they have they have now downsized greatly. They have now, you know, these people have, have enlisted my help to get them prepared. They now have safe rooms in their house. They now have food storage for at least three years. They now have water supplies that are upwards of a thousand gallon. Um, they have vehicles that now run on multi fuel. Uh, you know, there's so they they really woke up after that happened and said, "Whoa, you were right." And they all thought that I was crazy. You know, you, well, you live in the woods and you go barefoot and you do this and you do that, and it's like, but you know what? When the stink hit the fan at that level, I'm not sitting there wondering what am I going to do because now I have this house full of brand new furniture. I have two brand new cars that have five-year loans on them. I have a mortgage I can't pay. I have kids that I can't feed. I have a job that's not giving me enough money to do anything. And so now you have people with ulcers and having stress and having heart problems and having respiratory problems because they're all stressed out. I didn't have any of that problem. And then they looked at me and they went, wow, I guess you had it right. (laughs) So you kind of have to watch what's going on around you because if you don't, you know, you're going to get sucked in and it's really going to take you down the wrong path. What you just said there in the last two or three minutes is awesome. And I think, I think that's a terrific stopping point because that pretty much puts a huge exclamation point on everything we just talked about. Um, as we wrap this up, White Bear, once again, Give out the names of both of your YouTube channels. Uh, the first one is YouTube.com slash Primitive Living. Okay. The second one is YouTube.com slash Barefoot Bush Rat. Okay. And then the website is PLSSLivingWild.com. PLSSLivingWild.com? Yeah, dot com. Okay. And one more thing before we sign off your classes where where are you where exactly are you teaching them i i actually teach all over the country uh um i am one of the only in, instructors that a, is actually trained to teach survival in all the different topographies around the country um, so I've where can all, people I've lived in all the different topographies i've i've trained in all of them i've taught in all of them um so i travel all around uh, I do a lot of winter stuff that people are getting more uh, curious about and more involved in because there's more winter sports going on and people can learn how to survive in the winter. Um, but I also do I do desert, I do you know swamps, I do rainforest, I you know I do it also. I set up classes all around the country. I don't have an uh, you know the the wilderness is the school actually. I don't have an actual classroom. Uh, like a lot of places you go. So the classroom is the woods. Yeah, that's cool. So which uh, can they go to your website to find a listing of all the classes? Yes. PLSS? Livingwild.com. Livingwild.com. And there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, White Bear, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you. And I, I'm not going to wait so long next time to bring you on again, okay? Okay. And, and one thing I want to say is I want to congratulate you on becoming a uh, firearms instructor. Yeah, um, yeah, that's uh in fact I got three I'm doing three different types of instructions now. 
Well, that's cool because I do follow your other podcast as well, and uh, I, I like that one as well. And I, I, uh, I'm very impressed that you uh, went on and did that, and, and that you're doing. That's a great thing. As I mentioned, it was never an intention of mine in the beginning. I just wanted to do podcasts and and talk about what I know and what I've learned and, sh- and share my journey with people. And it just kind of evolved. It kind of just evolved into doing training, and uh, it's going pretty well. We're selling out most of our classes, not all of them. Uh, with the recent events that, that, that have gone on recently, there's a big demand for firearms, ammo, and training. Yes, there is. And, and uh, I, I've had a lot of that with the classes that I've done, uh, people that are getting into uh, the firearms training. Yeah. Thanks, White Bear. Appreciate your time. You too, Bob. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. Okay, many thanks, White Bear. Thank you for donating your time. Speaking of donating his time, he did come back for a second interview. We talked about some other subjects not related to what we just discussed on this podcast. So he contributed to my Survival Champions Club. We did talk about how to get, how to select a good survival instructor. I hope that you do, do take one of White Bear's classes, but if you don't take one of his classes and you are looking for some survival instruction or preparedness or self-reliance instruction... He gave some pretty good tips in the follow-up interview on that. We also talked about vehicle preparedness. I got him to talk about and give some ideas of what to keep and and what to store in your vehicle and how to do it. It's kind of an interesting subject because last week I had the guys from Bug Out Truck talking about how to set up your vehicle. And uh, White Bear spent some time talking about what to put in it. He also explained why he goes barefoot, which was really cool. And some other really good ideas. I, I don't want to give too much of it away. So if you'd like to support my show and get the Survival Champions Club podcast, uh, there will be a link in the margin at todayssurvival.com. You can select any of the Survival Champions podcasts that I have available. i got three of them available right now. They're unique podcasts that have not aired on this show. One of them is Glenn Tate talking about how to Build a Prepper Team, Part 2. Another is John Newser on self-defense training tactics. And then, of course, White Bear comes back on for all the information that I just told you. Each of those are $25 each. Now, you can get all three of them. Normally, it would be $75. You can get all three for 60 So you can pick one, get it for 25 or pick all three of them and get them for $60. Gives you a $15 savings if you bought them all separately. Again, proceeds would help my show. I do not have sponsors on this show, folks. On purpose, I could sign up sponsors if I want that paid me every month. But I like to keep things independent. And I like this to be a listener-supported show so you don't have to listen to a bunch of commercials and listen to me ramble on about sponsors. So go to todayssurvival.com, look in the right-hand margin, you'll see the link for Survival Champions Club. All right, well, that's you know pretty much all I wanted to say for this episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed this 206th episode of Today's Survival Show. I'm Bob Main. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week. Goodbye.